you're writing fiction, you are the god of that world, and nothing happens, nothing can happen without your say-so. Every writer has a responsibility to create a world that will not only entertain, but relate and draw in their reader and make them want to know more. Welcome back to Legacy. I'm Helena Drago, and you are listening to our How to Write a Novel podcast. Today, my husband Ty Drago and I will be drawing upon our previous episodes to discuss world building, how to create your novel's world so that it is a vibrant, recognizable, and relatable place in time with characters your readers have grown to love. We are coming to our own conclusion to this podcast with one more episode left for Season 1. As my husband Ty would say, the penultimate episode. You know, I never thought I would use that word in a sentence. So, join us in our penultimate episode. Here's Ty talking about world building. First, a disclaimer. I can't teach anyone how to write a novel. All I can do is teach them how I write a novel. The information we present in this podcast is my advice. Another writer might say different things, might use different terms. That's just the nature of the beast. Disclaimer over. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for the heads up. Well, I don't want some English professor somewhere saying, that's not what world building is. And it's very subjective. Okay. Okay. In my mind, world building is the entirety of the story. Everything in the story, the characters, the people, the places, the events, the timeline, everything that occurs from the beginning to the end and everything in between is world building. You are building a living, breathing world. When I start a novel, I start with what I think of as the tent posts of fiction. Picture your entire book is a tent that you're building in your backyard or something. And the poles for the the tent posts that hold up the tent, the canopy of the tent, are the tents the voice of the story. Wait a minute. Tense is not plural tense. It's T-E-N-S-E. That's what you meant, right? You are absolutely correct. Thank you for clarifying it's that. It's not like five tents. It's not like five tents. <laughs> There's four tent poles, and the first tent pole is tense. T-E-N-S-E. Past tense, present tense. The second one is voice. We did an entire episode on voice. I'm not going to touch on what voice is. Third one is point of view. Geese going by. We're recording this in the fall. The fourth tent post is person. First person, second person, God forbid. And third person. I don't recommend second person. Everything under the tent, everything inside those tent poles and, and covered by the canopy is the entirety of the story. All of that is world building. Tense, voice, point of view, person? Person. First person, second person, third person. How you're writing the book. Isn't that point of view? No. Point of view is the character through which you're telling the story. For example, in the book I'm writing, I'm writing the oh. book in third person, but there are a number of characters and there are different points of view. And you have to make all four of those decisions before you can write a word. I don't know. I've seen you actually write novels and you'd be a good way in and you'd say, huh, I got the tense wrong. Or I got the uh, person wrong. And you'd rewrite the whole dang thing. Yeah. So you don't, sometimes you don't know whether or not what. Well, you're not wrong. I have done that. And here's the great lesson that taught me. 
get these four tent posts firmly established in your mind before you start writing. Otherwise, you're going to waste a lot of time second-guessing yourself. The four poles of your tent. You have voice, you have POV, you have person. Tents. How about some advice on what tents you should be using? 99.9% .9 of the books you read are in past tense. The rest are in present tense. Those are the only two tenses you see in fiction. There are lots of other tenses. No point going into them. Only two tenses being used? In fiction? In yes. Present or past? Yes. Overall. So when you have a book that's in past tense and the characters are referring to or the narrative is referring to something that happened further back, then they'll use past perfect. So why is this a pole of your tent? I mean, it seems like a pretty basic thing. It's That's like, why it's a pole. I've often seen writers where English is a second language have problems with tense when they try to write fiction in English because tenses in other languages, Spanish, for example, are a little different. Why would you use one tense over another? I mean, who cares about tense? Just pick a tense and go with it. For example, uh, in science fiction, present tense is often used. Why? Because it makes you feel more in the moment, more future-y almost. It has a modern feel to it that works in science fiction. If you're looking for some scientific reason to pick it, there isn't one. It's This one is a gut. You know, do I want to tell this story with that sense of modern immediacy that present tense gives you? Or do I want to tell the story more traditionally with past tense? From my experience, and in the case of tense, bitter experience, make sure you know what tense you want before you start writing. Yeah, I get it. All right. Tense, voice, point of view. And person. Third person or, or first person. Yes. There's also second person. You don't see that much. Which is you. You did this. You did that. No, you only see you that. You don't see that much. Any other questions before we move on? Oh, we got more? We're not done. Okay. World building has components. Some of them we've talked about to varying degrees. One we had an entire episode about. Characterization, manufacturing people. But it's more than manufacturing people, right? And we got to manufacture places, settings. you got to manufacture the culture of what you're writing about. And then once you've put together a snapshot of the world, you have to put that snapshot in motion. That's where you manufacture events and you manufacture time. And that's world building. Now, to actually do the world building, there are a number of tools you can, you can work on. And again, we've looked at a few of these in some depth. One is the idea of plot-driven versus character-driven. Plot-driven in the sense that it's more about the plot, where the plot drives the story along, or whether it's more character-driven. While there is still a plot, the characters and their, the growth of the characters and the evolution of the characters is one of the key forces in the plot. Another one is understanding right what you know. And we talked about that too, and how in fiction you start with what you know and then you build on what you know through research, through imagination, I think back on some of my favorite books. They may be fiction, but there's always a kernel of some familiar um, territory for the author. Like Stephen King writes in Castle Rock in Maine, but he lives in Maine. And that is where he's, he brings in what he's familiar with. That's true. And um, most of the stories I write are set in and around Philadelphia because it's a city I'm familiar with. So yes, from that perspective, we all start with what we know. And then they're building and they're using imagination to pile on new ideas and concepts. Right. That's what grounds them. We talked a little bit about show, don't tell. It's the concept that when you tell, it informs and show engages. The rule of show, don't tell is not an absolute rule. When you're showing something, when you're demonstrating what's happening in the world through your character's eyes and their senses, it takes more words. And when word count is an issue, you have to be judicious about that. Sometimes there are certain aspects of the story where telling will work. 
When you're doing action, for example, you tend to tell because you're moving things very quickly along. Tom punched him and showing would slow, slow things down. Tom felt himself gripped by an uncontrollable rage. For an instant, he saw red, and the next thing he knew, Phil was on the floor with his nose bleeding. Show versus tell. One has much more emotional impact to it. The other's a little clinical. There are times to use both. Such as? Action. When you're doing a fight scene, if we talked about Lee Child and Jack Reacher, he does a lot of telling in the fight scenes because it slows things down if you do what I just did with Tom and Phil in every sentence. One of the things we've talked about is using all of your character's senses in your narration. But here's a quicker way to do it. You know, you can say, this is what my character's seeing, this is what my character's hearing, smelling and feeling, but you can sum it up with what I call vibe. You know, if you're walking to a room and there's a vibe, all you have to do is express the vibe and that can succinctly show the reader what's happening. Give me an example. A cop walks into a biker bar all the conversation stops, and he hears what sounds awfully like gun hammers being drawn back. He has a vibe. The vibe is danger. You walk into a house. It's dark. It's eerie. There's nothing happening. There's nothing you can see or smell or hear or taste that seems threatening. But the sense of foreboding and of menace is all around you. That's vibe. That can tell so much to the reader without you having to say, oh, there's a bookcase over here. The staircase has spider webs all over it. If you give them the vibe, they'll fill in the rest. It's a very effective tool for showing, but keeping the word count down. And then you get into the nitty gritty of the actual writing. Active language versus passive language. Active is Joe punched Phil. Passive is Phil was punched by Joe. Generally speaking, when you're an active voice, you're more in the moment. Things are happening more immediate. They have a much, much more of an urgency to them. Passive voice, when you're building suspense, when you're doing characterization, when you're telling narration where the urgency isn't as important as getting across subtle ideas. I have to know when to use each one. Let's talk about adjectives and adverbs for a minute. I realize it's getting dry, so we'll keep it brief. Adjectives and adverbs are not necessarily your friend. In nine times out of 10, I might even go so far as to say 99 times out of 100, the word very is not necessary and you can remove it. I very much agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> See, I did it that sentence. And that's true of a lot of adverbs. I've been to creative writing classes where they've told me if you want to get the word count down, go through the entire book and remove every single adverb. And then go back again and put in just the ones you absolutely need. But don't you think he jumped quickly? quickly is an important adverb there. Depends on what the context is. If he's being chased by a mob that's threatening to kill him, quickly is pretty much implied. You don't need an, an adverb. The context is providing all of that. Adjectives, the same kind of rule applies, but much more softly. Think hard before you throw too many adjectives at people. They tend to slow things down, especially when you're writing an action scene. We've talked about the length of sentences. The length of words can matter. And when you're writing action scenes and you want to keep things moving, don't use big giant words, use smaller words. I know that sounds crazy, but it's very effective. All of that boils down to this. Consider every word. A novel is like a painting. A painting is simply a collection of thousands, tens of thousands of brushstrokes. Each brushstroke matters. Each word is a brushstroke and each word matters. And you have to be clear on why you're using every single word you're using. And when I go through a book, I am very mindful of every single word and every single sentence. It's tedious. When I say that to novice writers, they look at me in horror because it sounds like so much work. 
but when you're finished, you have what's called tight writing. You know, when people say, I was a page turner, I couldn't put it down, it was a quick read. That's what they're talking about. They're talking about the author who did not waste words. Now we're gonna talk about how to apply world building to all the genres that are out there. The concept of world building came out of fantasy and science fiction. Because in science fiction and fantasy, that's what you're actually doing. You're taking a world that doesn't exist and you're creating from whole cloth. In other genres, mystery, thrillers, historical fiction, the world either did exist or does exist. So where does the world building come in? That's a fair question. <laughs> well, I missed my cue. <laughs> world building applies to all of them. Say you get a murder mystery. It takes place in a hotel. What's the culture in that hotel? Who runs it? How do the people get along with each other? What's the hotel like? What are its characteristics? What are, are its tensions? Where, what are the problems in the hotel? All that's world building. Stephen King wrote The Shining. He invented a hotel that he called The Overlook that was based on the Stanley Hotel in Colorado. He started with what he knew and they built on it. But he built the history of this place the deaths and the, and the tragedy and the ghosts and the horror that lived within its walls. And the tense was passed. Tense was passed. The voice was, I don't know. You can't sum up voice in a single word. If I were to give that novel a voice, I would say dread. That was its voice. The point of view was? Well, there was Jack, there was his son Danny, and there was the Halloran. Halloran. Mm-hmm. And the person was third person. So there was the four poles. And the hotel. There was a POV where he was inside the hotel. Ah. And then everything under that, the world building, which mm -hmm. was the location, is the creepiness of the hotel, it was the time of year. There's the characters, the culture of the hotel and its history and all the, all the creepiness that you mentioned. There was what happens. Part of the world building is the world is in motion. And everything that happens is part of the world building. Ty and I started to talk about the world building he does in his own books. Listen in as Ty talks about the world building he did in his new novel, Torque. Torque is a novel of mine that just came out last month. We talked about it a little bit in the last podcast episode. Torque is all about world building because I had to take a closed culture, a culture of a million people living inside this gigantic broken machine no doors or windows no knowledge whatsoever of the outside world and and the society that they have built i spent a lot of time thinking about the limits of the world that they were living in and how that would limit their thinking and that's classic science fiction fantasy world building what do you think was the most challenging thing about the world building of torque i struggled with getting the voice right because while Torque is an adventure, a steampunk superhero novel set in the distant, distant future, the primary characters are teenagers. I needed to write them in such a way that even though the world building separated them so much from con our contemporary world today, they needed to be relatable. They needed to be teenagers. They needed to be recognizable teenagers. 
that was part of finding my voice. You raised an interesting thing that, that you really haven't hit on before. Is One of your books, The Undertakers, a series of books that was for middle school readers. Torque was for teenagers. Yeah. You also have written for adult. And those are three very different voices. Can you describe what made them so different? What is it that you needed to hit for each one of them? Oh boy, that's hard to put into words. It took me a long time with The Undertakers to get the voice right. Because it's been a long time since I was 12. And the world is very different now than it was then. I needed to get into the head of a 12-year-old and look at the world through their eyes. The Undertakers is about a bunch of kids fighting a war that only they can fight because only they know it's happening. No one will believe them because no one believes kids about things like this. Armed with that premise, I was able to find the right voice. I remember you struggling with it, and then you did something that I think helped you find the voice of a 12-year-old. I talked to a 12-year-old, my son Andy. Andy became my teacher. He taught me what it is to be a middle schooler. And I've had so many kids tell me how relatable I am now. It's because I'm channeling Andy. He was actually tremendously helpful. Just the slang you were using was, you Completely know, wrong. was old fogey language. Old fogey language. I had to rewrite that first Undertaker's book, I don't know how many times, trying to get it right. But as a result of it, the, the book was very successful, got an option for a movie, and it's dedicated to Andy to thank him for his help. And I think it just goes back to maybe episode number two, which is research, research, research. And one of the things you did was research your point of view. And that's what helped you nail I did. Lest you think you won't hear from my father-in-law, Tony Drago, today, here's a quick clip of the world-building that Tony provided for Ty to build upon in the novel that Tony imagined 25 years ago. Following the clip is Ty's thoughts on how to expand upon that brief outline. Prohibition had completely taken over the country, and the legal sale of any type of alcoholic beverage was now illegal. And suddenly, the speakeasy and the days of hometown gin were coming into being. The people were eager to have their drinks, and they were becoming more and more people that were ready to satisfy their desires. In fact, mobs started cutting up the city into pieces of control for the sale of booze to the various speakeasies. How does world building apply to a book that's set in Philadelphia in, say, 1915 to 1925? One of the problems with writing historical fiction is there is not as much historical record as you might imagine for the details of everyday life. You can find out what men wear. You can find out how speakeasies work, you know, in broad strokes, how the city was laid out, how, how people got around. But when you start thinking about how did an immigrant feel after they've been here for a couple of years and struggled with prejudice and struggled with, with hatred, how did they cope? What did the world look like to them? To Peter's eyes and to his brother's eyes, the world is hostile. They stick in their neighborhood in the South Philly with, with other Italian immigrants in a closely knit community. And part of the book is about Peter reaching out beyond that community and making connections and making friends. That world is an obstacle in his path. The world building in this book is all about the world itself presenting obstacles in Peter's hero's journey. You should really interview an immigrant 
to get the best POV that you can. It needs to be the right kind of imprint. Yeah. That's worth thinking about. You really should. And it's to get their point of view, as you did with The Undertakers, which really helped clarify the voice for you. It's worth a try. I'll see if I can arrange. So what are we left with after all this talk of show don't tell and plot driven versus character driven and using the six senses, etc.? That a writer's job is simply to paint a moving picture, to create a living, breathing world for their readers to explore through their characters' eyes. Except there's nothing simple about it. World building takes time and practice to use effectively. If you want to explore it further, find a book in any genre and see how that author does it. Read the work analytically parsing out techniques that you might be able to apply to your own story. But don't mimic. Make each world you create your own. In our next and final episode of this Legacy's first season, we will tackle the climax. And we might even give you a peek at the end of my father's book. I say might, because doing so is a little harder than you might think. See you in two weeks. Legacy was written and produced by Tyne Helena Drago. The music you're listening to is called Cliffsides by Dan Leibowitz, found on YouTube's library. <laughs>